1: Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Pixel Sift. It's your weekly video game podcast coming out of Australia. Uh, my name is Gianni and on the mics today are Scott and Mitch. Hey, hey. Hey, what's up? And joining us for this episode is Jack Condon. He's from S1 T2 and he's the lead developer of their first game, Kept. Jack, thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, uh, thanks for being here, guys.
1: Re- really great to get you on the line, and we'll be chatting a little bit about your game uh, coming up later in the show. Though, Mitch, we are going to be talking about some other topics, aren't we?
3: No, I do not want to update Office. Hang on, <laughs>
1: Windows 10 update. Yep. Mitch.
3: All right, yeah, we'll be talking the change, in, um, the change in political tides, how factors far beyond
4: your control can affect your gaming life. That's right, and our final topic for today, we'll be looking at EA's new disclosure rules regarding content creators.
1: The sun is going down, and the moon is coming up, so let's say Alola... To episode 55. Boom! Pixel Siv. It's not Pixel Siv, it's Pixel Sifter.
3: Pixel Sim. T- so last run- month, Reddit user Trivial Sublime posted to the site that EA Games and the Origin delivery system had been quietly disabled in their country. Players had the- that had purchased titles through the Origin found themselves locked out of their libraries, and a rather rude Origin is no longer available in Myanmar message posted across their. Systems. Uh, this has always been the
1: danger when you put all of your money into one particular system that, you know, you are... All your are eggs in one basket. Only licensing the content from, um, from these things. And there is always reasons why these things can go down. In this particular case, though, what was the kind of reasons given for the shutdown of, of access for anyone in Myanmar?
3: So EA's pretty much excuse, for lack of a better term, was that there were trade sanctions placed by the US government on Myanmar at the time and they due to that EA decided to suspend services to that entire country but this confused gamers in that country because Steam and all the other ones pretty much still continue to operate as
4: per usual and on top of that the confusion, confusion kind of continues because that um, sanction against Myanmar was uh, it was uh, it ended on October 7th of this year i mean I think it was 19 years it rained before that but, and it was um, locked down
1: on like about the thirtieth of October or something to that effect, so the end yeah. of the
4: month. So, and and with those sanctions, that wasn't blanket sanctions. You know, that was specific. Uh, you know, um, businesses. So it wouldn't have even. I don't think it would have even covered them before that. What do
1: we think? Do you think uh, that potentially EA may have just been a bit, bit, you know, nervous about getting into trouble about this particular thing, and were maybe someone had just been reading through the books and think, oh, what are all the regions that we operate in? Oh, Myanmar, actually, we've got trade sanctions against so them. Maybe we should just shut the service down.
4: Absolutely, instead of- they wanted to kind of remove any liability, I think, and they just overreacted. Well, it's interesting
3: that the account, the account in question,
4: um, Mr. Sublime's account,
3: was not actually made in Myanmar. Yes. No, but that did affect,
4: because he he wasn't actually from Myanmar, he was just over there. But he did state that many of his other friends who were had the same, you know, that was troubled to the same effect.
1: It's really interesting that this is such a prevalent form of distribution now. Um, And I'm curious to to see, Jack, what you think about this with um, the first game that you guys are working on. Could you see a, a model where you could distribute your game physically or is, is this online sort of content licensing sort of systems the only way that's going to work?
2: Well, I, I think it's romantic to look back at like the stories of ID handing out their stuff as shareware on different platforms and all that kind of thing. Um, but realistically, in terms of user bases, these guys have the market um, and our motivation as developers is to get the game out to as many people as possible. Um so, really, these are the um, distribution platforms. I think there are a lot of um, options out there, though. Um, you know, uh, GOG is one of them. Um, there are just other avenues in, uh, as well. But realistically, you want to be as many on as many platforms as possible. Um, the other thing is, obviously, um, there are incentives to work uh, with these platforms and build relationships because it can make that process a lot easier.
1: I wonder how the developers must have felt, though, it- if you had the market where you were basically in Myanmar and you were selling your games and then all of a sudden uh, you now have no access to all of those customers and they're the ones who are getting mad, unable to play the games because it's not just EA games. Obviously origin expanded out into other publishers as well as Ubisoft games and other sorts of games on there. I wonder what, how that would sort of feel to have a bunch of customers who couldn't play your games.
2: Ah, oh, obviously it would be awful. I, I feel like I'm responding to this more as a consumer though, you know, like mm. it's, as as a buyer of a lot of games and like I obviously use a lot of these platforms, I love these platforms um, and and they really work. Um, in terms of the Reddit posting, before seeing this, I would have been someone who would have been maybe saying, you know, DRN's annoying, but uh, you know, it's it's the system, blah blah blah, and really throwing caution to issues such as kill switches. Um, that they could be engaged, and that people have been talking about and warning so for a long time. Now we have um, precedent for that, and that's—I mean—that's scary. I don't think this is an EA thing. I think this is uh, a look at digital distribution. I think- as as a developer, though, I don't know if this changes things for us. I, I think that you know, like, we're, we've still channeled down these pathways, um, and we still really want to be on those platforms so people can buy it. Um, but we do have to just look at the the best side of the outcomes, and that's that is everyone really just wants to get products out there. It benefits everyone. Um, so, I think that this case specifically, it needs to be explored a lot more.
4: Absolutely. I, I think this is a bit of a wake-up for, I mean, the age of streaming. I mean, this is, a, this is, this is part of the initial outcry because I, I come from a bit of the musical background. So, the same things almost apply with your Spotify's and your whatever kind of streaming service you want to talk about. Um, but but the initial initial kind of problem when we, what that we had with these Spotify's and 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 Steams and whatever is that yeah you you don't as a consumer actually own that content ever. And I think people have got a little bit complacent over the last few years, and maybe they have kind of forgotten that that's exactly why they, you know, that's exactly what these streaming systems are all about. It's their flaw.
1: Well, fundamentally. To be fair, though, with a CD or you know DVD, you actually don't own that content really either. You own the physical medium.
4: You physically own it though, and that's the problem with streaming. You never physically have anything. But no one can push a button halfway around the world and make a CD stop working. Yeah, that's the problem. Are they they sure though?
1: Maybe Ah. they have got the technology. (laughs)
4: But but again, like like I said, this this was an issue, you know, five ten years ago when streaming was starting to come out of the woodwork, and this was the main issue, the only issue almost, and and now people have you know it's it's coming to fruition. I
1: think it's just one of these things that if you you made the service so seamless and uh, easy to use, and the alternatives are kind of more annoying to, to deal with, um, you know, there's no way you can have a Steam library like uh, video producer James has um, <laughs> physically in a house. It just wouldn't happen.
4: No, absolutely not. But, I mean, that is the advantage, I guess, and at, at the same time the disadvantage of entering into this, uh, you know, futuristic streaming di- digital realm. What I want to know from from everyone, really, is what would you do if you lost
1: access to all of your, your digital content? Well, How would I, that make you feel? I would
3: lose... Starcraft, I think Starcraft, Nova, Covert Ops, and I think that's about
4: it. Yeah, see, I wouldn't <laughs> lose very much. Again, coming from a musical DJ background kind of thing, it just f- streaming music for me has never been feasible. Mm-hmm. So I've transferred that idea of, you know, actually physically holding on to things into my other worlds of streaming. So my games that's- and whatever. I do use uh, Steam, of course, but. Very sparingly and nothing f- like not for none of my AAAs or anything that I really kind of c- uh, want to keep and care about and play often. That being said, all my cars
3: on GTA, they're all stored online, technically. Uh, my Overwatch progress and my Guardian are yeah, all well, online. So, yeah, that would go and that would suck a yeah. lot. Jack, what are yeah, you going to do up in the- in the uh, cloud, though, isn't it? Yeah. Jack, in the digital apocalypse, what, what are you going to be doing with your time?
2: <laughs> I am different from you, guys. I would be distraught. I'd be <laughs> on my knees- Screaming into the clouds,
4: I think. Yeah, see, that's um, it. I was never willing to let myself get into that position, so I've <coughs> kind of avoided putting myself into it.
1: I think I'm more on the in the uh, you know the Jack crowd here. I think uh, I would be, in be a l- screwed.
4: I'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, when Steam
1: first came out, I actually did make an effort to make offline backups so that you could reinstall the games offline. Um, but after a while, you're just like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. I've got internet. <laughs> this it's will all never fine. happen to me. I don't need to worry about that problem. It's uh, it's not an issue at all. Um, Jack, we'll, um, we'll be back with you in one second, uh, but let's have a chat about your game, Kep VR. Let's jump into a promo then and we'll come straight back.
0: Watch episodes, let's plays, and more at youtube.com forward slash pixelsift au.
1: So Jack from S1T2 still joins us on the line. Jack, you are developing a VR virtual reality game, and this is the first foray that uh, S1T2 has kind of made into games. Jack, why did you and the team decide to make a game?
0: Um,
2: well, we've been working with games for a while now, but more enterprise and things like that. Um, I guess it's really frustrating because we do do a lot of good work, but it. Sort of doesn't get that kind of recognition. So this for us um, started as an idea and it just grew and grew and grew in a really organic, healthy way. Um, And now we have kept. Um, So it was really an organic thing that more and more people from the office they got on board with and we just started pushing all our passion into it. Um, I mean, outside of that, um, our company, Story First, Technology Second we are really interested in narrative. We write a lot about narrative. We're really trying to push the bounds of narrative and we're always working with new technologies to try to do that. So, it's, VR is a new medium and we're really getting to push the bounds. It's perfect for us in that way.
1: So, you know, it's in your name, story first, technology second. Why is virtual reality essential to telling the story of Kept?
2: It's a really good question. At first, I think we actually rushed into the decision to do VR because it was a new technology. I think a lot of people kind of fall victim to this. Um, It wasn't until, and and we have worked in VR and we kind of knew what it was good for, Um, but it wasn't until we fully understood the idea of presence and the idea of what that does to a story and all these kind of things and iterated over them that it really became important. Um, I guess it would be nice from, I don't know, a sales perspective to say, we can make this game fully cross-platform and everyone can enjoy it, but now we are looking directly at VR to really take a hold of the full medium. Um, So, I guess, uh, specifically, like, out of that, it's just little things, like having hand controllers that you can move around. I mean, we've got the Leap, and you could play that in front of a computer, but when you're in VR and you can actually move your hands around, that is such a crazy experience in comparison to a controller that you'd sit on in the couch, because now I can actually touch things, move things around, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And and that, for me, um, in terms of game design, opens up, a whole kettle of fish in terms of trying to make mechanics and try to make people feel things through mechanics. Um, So it's been really exciting.
3: How long have you guys been uh, working on the game?
2: Um, We've been in production for about four months, and now we're going into the next pre-production phase for um, our next kind of section. Uh, Before that, we were in pre-production maybe for about three months. So all up uh, around seven months.
1: So when you're creating... Projects for other clients. What when you're creating a project for another client, and then you decide to go into make your own game for your own? You're the client, effectively. How does that process sort of differ between the two?
2: You know, it's 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 kind of the same in a way because we generally do get a lot of creative control in what we do. But um, I guess the difference is is that I'm here talking to you guys. We were down at PAX representing our own ideas, where emotionally. And physically connected to them, you know, we're here all the time trying to push it, um, and that's a definite emotional change. You know, the tools are the same; we're still working with Unreal Engine, we're still working um, with all these uh, Maya and all these kind of things. Um, but the conceptual shift um, and the importance of it, you know, like <laughs> there's a lot more pressure, I would say, as well.
1: Is that internal pressure that you're feeling?
2: No, I think it's 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 internal, not as a company, but you know, from within us. Um, We we really want to tell a good story here.
1: Is it because you've got more kind of, you know, skin in the game? Is it that why you feel this kind of pressure?
2: I don't think so. I I think that it comes from the idea that now we have a chance to actually, there's there's a market. We know there's a market for people who want to see narrative in VR. We have a chance to tell the story. We want to make sure our story resonates with people. Um, And we want to make sure our mechanics work and um, all those kind of things. Um, you know I, I guess maybe actually to come back on that I guess it is that where we've got skin in the game this is important to us on a personal level I,
1: I just want to ask a little bit about you mentioned the market there and virtual reality is sort of a developing market there are you know retail sets that are available now you can go to a big box retailer and pick one up Um, you know PlayStation has entered into this sort of market as well what sort of reached are you sort of hoping for and and where do you see this kind of being by the time that kept is is completely out and available in in a completely finished form
2: well from what i understand is um over one hundred fifty thousand vive headsets just the vive sold at the moment and that's um, ever increasing it's not the biggest pull and i uh one of the big things we're suffering with now is we really want to make a room scale game but we don't know if that's going to be marketly available. Um, Maybe in Australia where people uh, can have houses if you live kind of out of cities and things like that but you know for a lot of people space is at a premium, more than a computer cost, more than a VR headset so that's a major issue there. Um, But even within that kind of non-room scale setup, um, room scale being where you can walk around, um, there's still major limitations uh, with the market. I I guess it's good and bad as a developer, you know, if, if you can leave, leave the forefront of a new market with really good content, um, I think that makes you stand out and in a way at the moment, AAA is only getting involved, you know, like it is a new market, they're getting involved now, um, but you know, India is producing equal content at the moment and that's because maybe the AAA, maybe they think maybe they're not going to get a return of investment because there is less copies to sell. Um, but obviously, our budgets and whatever—they—they they don't compare to, you know, Assassin's Creed, which takes hundreds of staff to make. Um,
1: it's interesting that you mentioned sort of, you know, the the pricing and in, in in indie sort of uh, budgets and putting a game together like that. There has always been a sort of uh, sort of disconnect between what the idea of an indie studio and the games that an indie studio produces versus what the uh, professional AAA style studio, like the ones you mentioned there, Ubisoft making Assassin's Creed and things like that. How, how do you plan to sort of navigate that sort of perception and that sort of space? Do you think there is a, a, a nice niche for you guys to kind of fit in?
2: I think so. I, I kind of um, have a personal opinion. I don't know how uh, this isn't reflected with other people, but I have an opinion that Indie has an opportunity with narrative to do things that maybe big publishers can't do. Now, big publishers prove us wrong all the time out of this, but I think there is this conception that Indie has that. Um, and with the creative freedom that we have at this point in time, like we definitely have that opportunity to explore whatever ideas that we want to. Um, and I think that's really good for the Indie market. I think there's people out there who look for that content specifically. Um, at the same time I think it's hard, I see a lot of really great VR content currently getting slammed because it's not long enough or, or other concepts that game should be this or a game should be that. I think VR as a medium is pushing what a game can and should be uh, into maybe things more like experiences or things that push more cinema ideals into gaming and there's kind of a shift in what that can be and, and that's really interesting looking at the market. Um, other people are really, you know, really keen for this. Uh, I'm thinking about maybe like games like the Stanley Parable. Um, really short runtime, but the delivery of it is perfect, and there's nothing there that shouldn't be there. It's perfectly designed in that in that way. Um, and I think as an indie studio, you can afford to experiment with those kind of ideas and pushing gaming into other areas that it could be. Do you feel that you
1: might be in a bit of a, I guess, a safer spot than some other indie studios who might be kind of coming out? Because if you need a bit more time to work on this, you have always got client work to fall back on.
2: A hundred percent. It's an absolute blessing. The other thing is with a studio like ours, I think we are in not a totally unique situation, but it is a little bit unique. Um, We get to iterate with mechanics all the time, all sorts of crazy things, and and we're learning all the time. Game developers always tell you a game jam is great for learning new concepts in a way. You want to try a mechanic, you can do it over a weekend and then you get that out there and people play it and it's a crazy idea and maybe you get a game out of it, you know, maybe you don't. That's kind of how I see our work because we always put in everything we have into this kind of stuff and um, and that really just helps us make better work for everyone. But now we're able to apply uh, uh, push those ideals onto our own games so it's really, really exciting. Um, it's, it is our first game, like I said, but we, we have had experience in the area and we're definitely using that.
1: I just wanted to ask one uh, more question about story and story delivery. When you're talking about games and expectations of what people think a game is, what in your experience works well for VR and what just doesn't translate from everyone else's idea of what a game is?
2: It's a big question. I think VR doesn't have to be one thing. Um, you know, your shooters in VR, they're really working and, and and already they have new mechanics that the medium affords them. You know, I'm talking about reloading ammo manually. A bit like um, Revolver. Um, you know, you've got all these meta mechanics about that process. Uh, and they certainly work. But I think VR is a new revival maybe of adventure games and point and click games and all these kind of things. I think they're gonna have a new energy about them and environmental storytelling and things like this are going to stand out in ways that they never have before. So that's really exciting um, and I think that every new medium has new allowances like when we uh, moved into film and had to learn all these techniques in the language and the grammar so many new ideas were generated from that visual culture and how to tell a visual story. I would say VR is no different. We're learning the ropes. No one's an expert at VR. If they tell you they are. They're, they're lying. No one is yet. We're all learning. but. At the moment, I would say from what we've learned, there's so much potential um, to, to really transport and tell a story um, in ways that people don't expect. And that's at the moment, that's what's beautiful about the medium, but that's going to shift and that's going to change and we're going to keep learning.
1: Well, look, if people want to watch your, uh, your journey and, and follow on as, you, as you're going along, um, where's the best place for them to find out more information about Kept um, and keep up to date with what you guys have been doing?
2: Uh, So you can go to keptgame.com, and we've got a blog there, which we try to keep updated. Um, We've got a Twitter, KeptVR. Come check it out. We're always trying to um, share what we learn about design, if you're interested from that perspective, uh, visuals, everything. So please come check it out.
1: I think that's one of the best things as well is that there is this kind of sharing sort of idea that everyone has in this sort of indie space where everyone's trying to do what they can and share that experience with everyone else. So definitely something to check out. I've had a bit of a play of it at PAX. Um, it's a really interesting experience, um, and if you have an opportunity to play it, say one of the up- upcoming events. I know, you, uh, I think you guys are heading over to, to GX in the early next year. If that's
2: yeah, that's the plan. We'd love to be there, so we're trying to work up to that.
1: Great. So if you're over in Sydney, you can go and check that one out. Jack, stick with us. We will jump into our next topic right now.
4: Earlier in the year, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment, as well as well-known YouTube streamer PewDiePie, made headlines by gaining attention from the US government and the US Federal Trade Commission for failing to properly disclose sponsorship in advertorial content. As a seemingly direct result, presumably to avoid similar issues itself, EA has recently announced new disclosure rules for streamers. Our final topic for today will be looking at what this all means and whether a precedent has been set for YouTube, Twitch, and our general streamed content.
1: I think we should just call this episode EA Plays It Safe Legally. Um,
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a really
1: interesting uh, space because, you know, this is sort of the wild west of new media. There aren't a lot of rules yet um, and the sort of expectations and professional guidelines that some of the older media industries might have had uh, don't apply to these people because they have created this sort of stuff on their own.
4: Yeah, look, uh, paying for reviews is not illegal. No. Um, the, the the FTC has uh, strict rules regarding the disclosure of such relationships, and that's basically what this has um, been all about, the need for it, for the need for disclosure. This is
1: something that is obviously here to stay, this sort of content. Um, the idea that people would have to disclose these things, uh, to to me, seems obvious. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. But it, it, it isn't... I guess it's one of these things that you better to apologise than ask for permission in some ways, but...
3: Well, we're in a time where influencers include people that don't have any media ethics training. It's true, so but they can and just,
1: also, in terms of bang for buck, they actually are probably more worthwhile to target than people in oh, the mainstream media. absolutely,
3: but they just don't have any ethical training so they'll just take whatever they can get and not disclose anything and then suddenly they'll get in trouble. They can do that. That's obviously a generalisation
1: but yeah, well, there is yeah, an opportunity can, for yeah. them to do that and you know, there's obviously opportunities for um, other publications to do that as well even if they have had that training because that uh, advertising revenue in which they support themselves can be very tempting when you become chummy with, with big reps and things yep. like that. So yeah, there is a temptation there and you know, it is easy to kind of slide towards this direction um, and having these sort of rules in place sort well, of makes a big...
4: For example, example of when you said the feasibility bit, uh, I don't have the exact stat in front of me, but it's something like of the, let's call it roughly 6 million um, people that viewed this uh, this paid for uh, endorsements, 3.7 million of them were from PewDiePie's audience alone. And he received a five-figure figure income for that. So, I mean, I haven't done the maths for it, but 3.7 million p- viewers via, uh, you know, uh, five figure payoff seems like they uh it's good bang for buck as far as advertising goes
1: there's a really interesting way in this sort of um direct to audience sort of um ability to talk to people you and know
4: not just audience but just specific uh niche audiences yeah i mean, it's already you've already weeded out all the wasteful kind of um you know people that you could uh, get to
1: in terms of targeted marketing, you can't really
4: ask for more. Yeah, that's, that's more. better, better
1: wording. Um, yeah. It's exactly this sort of this situation. We've had situations as well previously. <clears throat> We've talked about the Counter-Strike uh, Global Offensive where there has been sort of commercial interest in the background where streamers who are very popular have used their kind of influence and their audience um, and sort of not properly disclose their uh, financial links to companies they may be running which are doing it's, that sort of thing and this is different obviously but yeah, yeah. you know that's the, the but, other end of the spectrum but
4: you're, you're right this is this is different but not that far away like it's deception uh, and and like uh, PewDiePie and all the other streamers will say you know they there is there was a disclaimer right down the bottom you have to sh- do the show more on the YouTube and check right down and it said like explained to, in very you know short words that it was um, you know paid for or whatever They it, it explained it in some sort of fashion but the fact that they went to such lengths to try and hide it and not make it obvious is deceptive and it's not very truthful and it's not what you want from people like, you know, well-respected streamers.
1: I actually think this is a really well, good... Well, reputable anyway. This is a good move by EA as well. You know, it's better to get out in front of these sort of things and, you know, save yourself uh, yes. the heartache and the settling out of court um,
3: sort of decisions that you have to do in order to... So to it, doesn't EA have your, a, it doesn't put your it doesn't put your influences in a tight spot as well because these these people sometimes don't have the funds to fight these court battles.
4: They often yeah. don't. No, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So EA have done. I mean, they're one of the first ones. or well, they are the first big ones to kind of uh, step out and take this by the reins. But they've basically done uh, broken their rules into two categories. And the first is supported by EA. Uh, which applies to influencers who have received free products, paid travel, or access to press events. um, And they must tag the content hashtag supported by EA. Uh, The other category is full advertisements, advertisements where EA explicitly pays the content creator to play or promote a game. Uh, For those ones, it's a hashtag advertisement um, uh, tag. And also, there's a bunch of, you know... um, Actual audio messages as well as video stuff to pop up on their streams. I think there's like an influencer is uh, they need to include an audio message at the beginning of the video indicating whether it's uh, you know
1: this is an not. ad,
4: as, as well as the watermark that is basically supported by EA or advertised by EA.
1: Cool, Jack. I know you're early on in the development of your uh, your game, but where does sort of the streaming and and social marketing and influencer sort of method or channel, um, does that fit into to what you guys would be thinking about?
2: 100%. Um, obviously, uh, with our marketing, we just try to share what we're doing um, in a very collaborative process and that's kind of how we see it. I think that's typical for a lot of um, indie studios in and, and how they try to do their marketing. Obviously, You can't compete uh, with EA who can um, fund, you know, PewDiePie with a five-figure income and nor would we want to. We come from a different place uh, in most cases. I think that um, people who want to find your type of content, though, they will find it provided the content's out there. So all we need to do is make sure we keep pushing out content and being on those channels. Uh, if people are genuinely interested, they'll, they'll find it. I think that it, it is nice to see this kind of response, though. Um, I'm sure you guys know it more in, in journalism the kind of things that may happen out there. I, I actually have no idea, but I'm sure that this kind of activity has been happening in all industries for a long time. Transparency is so important, um, whether it be the gaming industry or otherwise. And I think that this puts uh, things like exploiting uh, YouTube in these kind of ways in a really good light for indie, for sure.
1: What do you think about from some perspective, someone who actually plays games, do you would that factor into your decision about uh, watching some of these channels? Do you watch these channels? Is this something that you do keep an
2: eye on? Yeah, I, I, I watch channels for sure, um, I love them in fact, but it's kind of interesting, I, I don't know if I would be turned off by a paid advertisement, this is still about, the, it's new content, it's not the content we're talking about of the game, I mean the game's included, but you are watching a personality and their reaction to it, and knowing that that is biased by money is super important, but in a lot of ways perhaps these things can be entertainment of their own level, um, and a lot of entertainment is censored um i think that it has to come into it and it really depends on the content and it depends on that streamer if it would affect me i really like that ea has done this though and i think that it's a good pr move for them as well um because you don't want to get into that sticky water
4: yeah i completely agree Uh, the preemptive kind of action they've taken is good for their public image
1: it's definitely something that you know we will we're going to see more of because it makes sense and this is the
3: future of of what media is. I think transparency is just what everyone's looking for now.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Especially from someone like EA. Look, um, we've reached the end of the show. Jack,
1: thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Um, Check out uh, S1T2's Game Kept. It's going to be out... In the future, uh, still a little <laughs> while away, so but keep an eye on their site for that. Uh, guys, if you want to check out information like find links, you can go to our website, which is pixelsift.com.au. Scott, we're also on
4: social media, aren't we? Yeah, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash pixelsift, twitter.com forward slash pixelsift, Twitch.tv forward slash Pixelsift and YouTube.com forward slash Pixelsift Influencing AU. the world yeah. and Mitch we have got some older episodes as well we've also got a stack of
1: PAX content where you can check out an interview with JK and Inga from
3: uh, S1T2 do That's check it out very very fun chat there um, whereabouts is all that sort of stuff so all the old episodes can be found on any podcast player of choice iTunes and Pocket Cast are the best ones um, also on our website and all our PAX content will be available on YouTube well it is available on YouTube YouTube, at our Facebook page, and on our Twitter. Thank you very much. We will see you guys again this time next week. Peace out. Cheers, guys.
2: Thanks, Adam. See you later.